When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Winter is Coming review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dudley Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamblett and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite Winter is Coming. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, but we have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a round of the week complete with a big quiz, of course, on WrestleCulture. As I said, though, joined by Hamlin and Sidgwick to review AW Dynamite. Winter is coming. Uh, and for a show that only had three match finishes on it, uh, Sidge, not bad, was it? Yeah, that no, was pretty good. Pretty damn good. Uh, excellent episode of television. Virtually flawless. I just, I'm desperate to talk about this match. It's one of those <laughs> matches that's so good, so detailed so affecting that I could have just written an editorial all about it. I love a match like that. Wonderful. Uh, I was was saying this to to Sidge on the news this morning. It's weird. I sort of have had to retrain my brain through AEW, through the Omega Danielson match and then this one, that Mm. just because a match doesn't have a finish, i.e. a pinfall or a submission, or other bollocks that they can do, doesn't make it bad does that make sense 100 percent. i'd like wrestling is better than real sports fundamentally because like when it's done right you can have this you can have a hot draw you can have anything you want you get to make the rules like it bends my brain listening uh like the post wwe uh, post 2000 wwe lifers it's all they've ever watched and Every week, their job is to make countless excuses for countless terrible finishes or bits of booking as if the poor old company has got no choice but to work around the stupid decisions. They make the decisions. It's all fake. It's not real. You get to make every single choice. It couldn't be more advantageous pro wrestling. And yet, for so long, the market leader didn't take full advantage of that in the way that last night AEW did. There is probably, and I dare say we probably touched upon this in the review of Grand Slam, there's probably no cooler emulation of sport in pro wrestling than a draw when done right, because it's nearly impossible in real sport, isn't it? You can have very exciting draws. You can have pulsating equalizers in football, for example. But overall, the whole game is always more exciting with a win and a loss. That doesn't have to be the case in wrestling. You've just got to do it right. You've got to do it efficiently. They did it so efficiently here. And it was to the credit as well of 
everybody involved with this particular episode, which I think is it's one of the best. It's one of the best dynamites ever, and that's not a hot take, you know. Like one of the best episodes of Dynamite ever, and it's not a hot take. But the the confidence of the wrestlers in question, the bookers, whoever it was that put it together, for Tony Khan to look at this and think, yep, it's a first title defense, but this is the right time to do it, and all the other things that will no doubt luxuriate luxuriate on during and after your recap of it. Um, I welcome. AW like bringing back something else that is useful. This draw is better than I would say about 85% of the wins in WWE this year because all of them were stolen. This draw was earned and there wasn't a winner and a loser. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, a match that didn't have a satisfactory conclusion but was very satisfying on the journey. Is that the best way to describe it? Um I think there's going to be an incredible amount of drama in the second match, oh my which days. this is uh, building towards. So, yeah, I think a draw is a very satisfactory conclusion. Personally, it means you get more action. It means you get an, another revisit of this incredible match. It's a way to ultimately, if you going down the line here, <laughs> if you think about it for more than a second and more than the actual finish or lack thereof or whatever, that draws an actual finish. If you want a sports-oriented product, you're going to have to have a draw, a tie game at some point. <laughs> and realistically, when Brian Danielson is eventually vanquished by Hangman Page and Brian Danielson enters the next phase of his AEW arc, he is going to appear all the more invincible. And because he's so great, and I think the, the genius of uh, Danielson, and I'm stepping on the toes of the actual review here, is that maybe him and a Carter and Hart of the three greatest of all time at presenting themselves. And what a difficult challenge this is of appearing to be the greatest of all time. Just the little nuances in the work, their control periods, their strategies. Danielson is immaculate at building himself intra-match as the greatest professional wrestler of all time. It's going to mean so much more when Hangman Page eventually vanquishes him clean in the middle this wonderful one-hour struggle is just going to inform mm. his world championship aura all the more. It's just going to be brilliant as well. I worry, I worry slightly that the sorry, I worry slightly that the tone is defensive of this finish, and I don't really want to take that tone. I think it was an awesome finish. Yes. I welcome draws. You're a man who stayed up to watch it, I, and I was gripped and exhilarated. I had the like, I was kind of glad, if anything, that they structured this show as they did. Because as good as the second hour was, it was a useful come down for me to be able to go to sleep at quarter to three. <laughs> if they'd have done this in reverse and they'd have gone off the air on this draw, I'd have still been awake now from watching it live. I like you can't do it all the time, but you trust the company that knows what they're doing to do it just enough that this is better for the overarching universe of AEW to have draws like this, to have draws like the one at Grand Slam, to know that like it's an added tease. It's one more thing that we can predict in good faith when they're going to do a pay per view main event. I recall, I think this was over the desks and not on the podcast, unfortunately, but myself and Sidgwick discussing the prospect of this going to a draw because of the the need maybe for this as a rematch. You know, you've got um, TV specials and big events and a pay-per-view in terms of revolution. There was business reasons for this to go to a draw, short-term and long-term. I don't, I don't, I don't want the tone of talking about this finish to be like, look, in defense of AW, here's why they did it. I want it to be champion it. Yeah. Like the, the market leader needs to get on their level to understand how a book could draw better because this is A1 storytelling. 
And also, it's all I was going to say, and we'll probably talk about this in the fallout from this in weeks and months going forward. I, had the match gone on five seconds longer, Page probably pins Danielson, but Daniels can, can turn around and be like, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have pinned me. Yeah, I'd have kicked out. I'd have kicked out for Bookshot Harriet. Anyway, right, you two put your feet up. I'm going to try and describe <laughs> this match in as much detail as quickly as possible. I obviously won't do it justice. If you're one of those people, and I don't think really people do no. this with the AEW shows as much as they do with the WWE ones, but if you're one of those people who just listens to our reviews and doesn't watch the match, pause this podcast right now, go and watch the match, and then come back to it. Because as I often say with some of the great matches we see in AEW, I am not going to do it justice. But anyway, <laughs> we start up, we start up with a, a lock-up between the two of them. Uh, not exactly a clean break from Brian Danielson. A lot of this early on sort of baiting Hangman Page. He'd, he'd do something and uh, then he'd stick his head between the ropes and be like, oh, whoa, whoa, get, you, get yourself back over there. And a lot of, and just in case I forget to mention it throughout this, I got till five through many of these spots that I'm going to talk through. Um, sort of technical exchanges between the two of them. But Paige eventually works out what Danielson's trying to do and just kicks him as hard as he can in the chest, which sort of stuns Brian Danielson. But uh, he says, yeah, you got me. Come on, let's have a handshake. But Paige isn't stupid off than that. So Danielson, yeah, shoves him. And then as Paige gets riled up, Danielson puts his head through the ropes to be like, whoa, 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 calm down. This is a this is a gentleman's match we're having here. Um, Paige actually gets uh, gets control of the match early on, catching a Danielson leapfrog, slams him down, but then Danielson counters, death-locking Paige's legs together, targeting the champion's mix, midsection. Uh, a lot of this sort of first half of the match is uh, Brian Danielson trying to isolate body parts as often as he does and weaken the attack, specifically the bookshot lariat. You take out the legs, you take out the arm, the shoulder, whatever you want to do of Hangman Page, and it's going to have a lessened effect, which I'll get to a little bit later on. Anyway, Page takes control in the corners of the old 10 punches in there, but then Danielson single leg takedowns in him and wrenches on that leg. As I mentioned, he was going to target those for quite a lot of this match. Puts in a side figure four ground and pound, as we've often seen from Brian Danielson in recent weeks. Uh, Page gums off the top uh, with a diving lariat, but gets caught with a kick. And then uh, Danielson just hoys Page, ribs first into the bottom rope, ties him up in the ropes, lays in chops across the chest. This is one of the many, I got till five uh, moments that we got and uh, hits a diving knee drop for a two count ahead of the first of many commercial breaks in this match. Uh, when we come back, Page crotches Danielson on the top rope, springboard Lariat to send him to the outside, Tope Suicida, and then uh, that brilliant Orihara moonsault that uh, Page hits for a nice cool spot there. Page goes for the sliding Lariat, but Danielson, when they get in the back in the ring, reverses it into a cradle for a near fall. Champion kicks out and immediately hits a Death Valley Valley driver for a two count of his own. Um they're fighting on the top rope. Page punches, punches Danielson away, goes to the moonsault, but Danielson rolls out of the way and uses a cradle for a nice near fall. Uh, Page counters the knee lift, though, into a cradle of his own for a near fall. Uh, Danielson goes for the label lock. Again, Page counters that. He's been uh, doing his research, gets a roll up. Um, but uh, Danielson kicks out and puts him in an ankle lock, targets the champions midsection. 
Um, Danielson then attach, attacks Page in the corner, a couple of running drop kicks, but when he goes for the third, Page catches him, hits him with a pop-up power bomb, sets up the bookshot, Larry, it's far too early for that. Danielson just rolls out of the ring, the sly, experienced veteran that he is. Uh, Page goes for another one of those Orihara moonsaults, but Danielson pops up, shoves him up the top rope onto the apron and sends him into the ring post, targeting repeatedly his shoulder. And as we called on the preview, Michael Sidgwick, this is where Hangman Page came up bleeding. Just bleed. I'm like that old UFC fan. Just said, just get a bit of color in this match. going to look great with that beautiful blonde hair. Um, During the break, uh, Michael Hamplot, I saw, pointed out on Twitter uh, that (laughs) Danielson just really pissing off this crowd, doing the, the Hogan ear cup, just flipping people off, really riling them up. I'm sure you'll talk a bit about that when we get to your part of your review, uh, Uh We come back, Danielson uh, fights out of a slam attempt, uh, German suplex bridge for two, followed, of course, he's in the cow outfit. Let's not forget Hangman Page. Cattle mutilation, of course. Uh, that forces Page to roll over to reach the ropes. They're fighting on the apron. Um, Danielson is uh, hitting those kicks of his to Hangman Page, but at the last second, uh, Dan- uh, Page ducks out of the way of one of them, and Danielson kicks the ring post. That allows Page can take control, sends him back into the ring, locks on the figure four, which forces Danielson to reach the ropes. And we go to a commercial break yet again. When we come back, Danielson counters a powerbomb into a Hurricane Rada cradle uh, and then transitions into a beautiful cross-arm breaker. Again, as Sige talked about in the preview, highlighting the various ways that Danielson can make you quit or lose a match, I suppose. Uh, Page rolls around but gets caught in a triangle hold, but he powers out into a powerbomb. Doesn't do anything, though, to Brian Danielson, so he has to get to the ropes. Danielson, again, just striking Page as often as he can, and suddenly, out of nowhere, Hangman Page catches him with a bloody tombstone pile driver for a two-count. They fight on the top rope. Danielson fights out. Regal Plex Bridge for a near fall again. And he hits an avalanche back suplex for two more. Goes for the sort of gotch-style pile driver on the apron. But Hangman reverses it and hits a dead eye on the apron. Page climbs up top, goes to uh, attack Danielson as he's on the outside. But Danielson moves out of the way. He doesn't just move out of the way, though. I saw this on the replay. He moves out of the way. Page jumps at him. He moves and he goes to the announce table. Just he's going past. Danielson gives him a little shove as if he needs helping on his way to go through this timekeeper's table. Uh, During another break, um, we see Danielson expose the padding on the floor and hit Page with a DDT on the concrete. We come back. Danielson's going for kicks. But again, he's tired and weakened by the match. Uh, Same thing with Page and his lariats. Um, They fight on the top rope. I don't know what time this was. This must be, what, 50 minutes into the match? And Page flips out of an avalanche back suplex, lands on his feet and hits a huge rolling lariat that was spectacular. And they trade cradles. Page again flips out of a German. They both hit a discus forearms. uh, But then Danielson counters one of them with a beautiful high kick, just sends Page crumpling to the floor. Uh, hits a buzzsaw kick. That gets him a two count. He does the kicking your teeth in, grabbing both arms and just stamping on his face. But Page counters uh, the Busaiku knee uh, into a brilliant dead eye out of nowhere for a, another great near fall. 
He returns the favour for Danielson, stamping on his face, um, goes to the bookshot lariat, but Danielson catches him, puts him in the Lavelle lock. And he, at that point, I think Page is maybe looking at the timer. Um, he's not quitting, though. So Danielson just does those forearms across the face. Uh, there's one minute left in the match. Page sends Danielson into the ropes. Lariat goes to the outside. Buckshot Lariat. Danielson is done. He is out cold. But before Hangman Page can crawl over and make the cover, the time runs out. It is a 60-minute, the record's longest AW match. Obviously, a 60-minute draw, Michael Sidgwick. This match was absolutely incredible. Um, I'm going to be all over the place with my review because I can't hope to do it chronologically, even though you've just ran through it. Centrally, my favourite thing about it was that it was all designed to make Hangman Page feel like a real-world champion. The hour-long yeah. duration has this sort of romantic, sentimental association with the old real-world champions of yore in the NWA. I don't think that was an accident at all, how his first defence has gone an hour. And the story was how he evolved from a guy who won a title at full gear to a guy who became a champion over the duration of 3,600 seconds. He grew I, into the match. Absolutely. Because at the very start, Daniel uh, Brian Danielson has got a lofty history with the Broadway. And he rubbed Hangman Page's face in that in the first five to ten minutes, jumping jacks, stalling, like total cocksure demeanor of I can go as long as I goddamn want. <laughs> and he kind of posed the challenge, like, can you? Because if you think about it, Hangman Page wasn't the tippy-toppy guy in ROH, nor New Japan Pro Wrestling, He's um, spent a lot of his time in All Elite Wrestling through the tag ranks. He hasn't gone anywhere near this distance before. Mm. And Danielson, with his impeccable body language, mannerisms, moments of crowd interaction, facial expressions, like the whole absolute lot, just set forth this challenge. And it was fantastic because throughout the match, Hangman Page started to learn from various mistakes. He went twice for the Ori Horror Moonsault, the second of which he just ate the apron from flipping <laughs> onto it disgusting, vile, but also secretly awesome bump. And then he started to capitalise on Danielson's strategic errors. Danielson went for his second backdrop suplex, and I swear to Christ, when he backflipped out of it, I squealed in delight <laughs> like the mark that I am. I thought that spot was not only incredible as an athletic feat, the, the placement in the match when he really was growing into the role as yeah. a fighting champion was stupendous. The idea that he'd learned the lesson that the master had imparted to him was just genius. I could talk about this all day. I'm going to try not to for the purposes <laughs> of time and getting other stuff done. Um, a few of the things I want to mention. I understand. I was shot Fight TV, so it's a different experience for um, people outside of the States. But I can imagine that you can't have had too much of an issue with the commercial breaks because I thought the various story beats that they positioned into the match at those exact times just didn't make the commercial breaks feel like a disturbance or an no. interruption. Like the blood thing was great. The stunt is a great go-to. And the timing of that particular um, dive through the table was incredible because... You'd seen him do it successfully at full gear against Kenny Omega, and that swung the momentum in Page's favour on that night. When he failed here, it genuinely had drama of, Christ, is Danielson going to actually yeah. do this? So not only did it drive the tension of the match, but it 
built into the commercial break and allowed for a longer period of selling. Um, there were certain moments in this match where the only word I can describe to use it is palpitations and their physical chemistry was so expert in sort of informing the actual like racing heartbeat of yeah. drama that I experienced watching it. Like there was a bit where Hangman Page was about to just about maybe position Danielson for the dead eye. And even before he just got him in position, Danielson had reversed it. There was another similar moment um, on the second um when Danielson tried to do the Busaiko knee, in one ridiculously fluid moment, that still somehow scanned as a struggle. He struck him with a dead eye. Yeah. Like, honestly, my heart was all over the place. Heart was pounding, totally racing throughout all of the duration. And yet they still didn't just do this ridiculous. Oh, we are great athletes with loads of stamina. We can just go, 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 go. Spam finishes. Not like that. It was just so beautifully paced. And I just thought the storytelling was incredibly elegant. I left this match thinking Hangman Page is the real deal as a champion. Having spent the last four weeks thinking, maybe you should wrestle. Maybe you should actually say something on commentary. Uh, maybe you should do something that reminds you of, oh, he's earned this belt. Um, any, I knew everything was going to be fine. This is the sort of match that makes you feel like an idiot for doubting anything. Yes, yes. Does. I knew everything was going to be fine. And then you watched it just be perfectly fine throughout the entire duration. Um, this was incredible. Your thoughts on the gear and then the match, Hamlet? Oh, the gear was unbelievable, man. Uh, we've talked about Brian coming out the babyface tunnel with the view that after all this, he wants to just go back to actually being a babyface. So to come out decked out all in white because in his mind, he's never been the bad guy in any of this. He's been ready from this fight since night one. Absolutely love that. Uh, I'm on pages, cow trunks. I was particularly pleased about his cow tights because he'd actually foreshadowed this on a podcast with Rene Paquette, which I was lucky enough to be able to listen to yesterday. That's there in oral sessions. And they make this sort of joke. She says like, oh, you're going to have to get like cowhide on your tights. And he's like, oh, um, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I think you like what I've got for winter is coming. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, you. Oh, like amazing, man. Um, so they both looked absolutely tremendous. This was, this was a masterpiece. I worry that I'll just end up Echoing half the stuff Cedric said, but I'll again, it'll fly all over the place. But I'll like try and keep the thoughts as succinct as I can because this is the match that lends itself to just conversation that could run and run and run and run all day. If I was, I wish I was in the office with you two today. And if I was, I know for a fact that we would just be popping up out of nowhere with spots that we remembered that we couldn't wait to share and talk about all over again. It's just one of those matches. Um, I say this all the time, and I want to keep saying it for ever and ever and ever when we're reviewing AEW. I love so much about this promotion that they invite you to fantasy book a million things and then they come up with a million and one and it's that last one that they do. Time has been so integral to the, I guess at this point, you can call it three-way rivalry between Kenny Omega, Hangman Page and Brian Danielson. The first thing, the first dig shot Hangman Page took at Brian Danielson was that, well, you couldn't beat Kenny in 30 and I beat him in less and we acknowledged that at the time with full gear. We said it was very important that Paige got that done in less time than it took Brian and Kenny to go on television. And then they go and have a 60-minute draw. <laughs> they go, like, nobody called. There was a discussion of draws, but nobody called them going 60 minutes to a tie. But you see it now in the cold light of day, and it makes perfect sense. And I love as well that the timing of, like, the timing of the story beats in this match was were more elegantly layered than... Like, I don't like the Ironman match between Sean and Brett at WrestleMania. Oh, you already, already slagged this off on the news this morning. Right. 
one of the things, uh, look, I, I love Brett, obviously. Anyone that's ever listened to these podcasts knows how much we all stand hard for Brett forever. But one of the things he loves about that match is one of the things I hate. He said he sat on the buckle and looked at the arena clock. And to the second, there was the exact amount of time he wanted to be left. Now, there's an art to that, that they had worked something like 50 minutes at this point, And they were exactly in the match where he wanted to be. Like, well done to them for the timing. But it had been at the expense of this match being particularly entertaining, in truth. You know, yeah. to get to that point, 50 minutes in, they'd kind of had to sacrifice this being fun. At 30 minutes, knowing that they had 30 minutes still to go, they ran through a series of super hot near falls because the, your wrestling fan brain is going, they might be wrapping this up now because we're hitting the Kenny time limit. We're hitting the we're hitting the Grand Slam and full gear time limits here. So we could be heading for the finish. They knew on the clock the exact time to run out a series of near falls and then move the match on into... Like into the next postcode, basically into the sixty-minute arena. You've watched enough wrestling to know that if the if you go in forty and if you go in forty-five, there's a good chance this could go sixty. We were told about the time limit, so it's at that point you start getting excited. But it wasn't until they'd ran through the sequence of hot near falls at thirty did you then start entertaining the Broadway brother. And that is so cool. They didn't. You weren't left to sort of ponder that or think about that until you've had half an hour of this exhilarating wrestling. When we watched the Grand Slam match. It was so immaculately paced that we all wished we could have had 30 minutes more. And AEW listened to those comments and all that gushing praise and gave us it here. And I love that so much. I love that so much for everyone that was involved in this, particularly Hangman Page, who I think Brian Danielson is going to get a lot of love here because he's the best wrestler of the year. He's the best wrestler in the world right now. He's the best all-rounder. He's the best example of WWE not being able to do this game anymore because he's, his wife's a lifer, his father-in-law's got a top job and they couldn't convince him to stay. They can't do this because he can't do this there. And there's going to be a lot of Brian Danielson discourse as a result, sprawling off in loads of directions. Hangman Page on the cell for every one of the 60 minutes here was absolutely sensational. He did every single babyface thing that I imagine you were taught from day one in wrestling school in the frigging performance center. Christ, that guy's never been through those doors in Orlando, but he finds a hard camera better than all those posturing mugs on NXT 2.0. Like every single time he spotted an opportunity to like show his face, whether it was gushing a bit of blood or whether he was just trying to just sell the agony of this athletic pursuit. I thought he absolutely nailed it. Just awesome selling in this. The idea as well, this match for 60 minutes put over the potency of the buckshot lariat because it wasn't enough for Brian to just target one body part. He had to break yeah. every bit of Hangman Page because that buckshot lariat requires so much of his body to not work really well, to not be sick. What an, like what an awesome way to put over that finisher. And that last sequence in which Page created a new version of the buckshot with Brian's momentum because his body was so broken down. So Brian does the flip in and Page just leathers him with that lariat. Like what an inspired spot to do so late on that he thought, well, all right, I'm going to make a new bookshop because I might be too physically worn down. I might not have enough gas in the tank to do that. I, I love this match. I, like I'm hovering around, this is probably my match of the year, but what I did know and fairly early on, and that's a nice feeling, is that it's awesome that you realise that you're watching one of the best matches you've ever seen as it's still ongoing. It's Andy Bernard's comment about wishing that you could be told that they were the best times when you were still in them. That was this <laughs> match. I knew I, was, I knew I was watching something genuinely special, historic, when it was still only halfway through. What a feeling. What an absolute feeling. This is why you watch. 
do you agree with the Sidious comment? We're talking about this on the news, so I'm just going to parrot it again here. Uh, running back at Battle of the Belts. Uh, is Battle of the Belts an hour? Yes. I mean, that in itself is really intriguing, isn't it? Because <laughs> if you if you open Battle of the Belts with this and you've booked... Two, we might get that dream thing I've been asking for for ages. You book two or three other things and then you put these on first. You're like, are we going to get all these other belts? Battle of the one belt because we ran out of time to battle for the other belts. <laughs> like, I, I love the fun that you can have with that. It's, it's obviously going to be run back. I put this on Twitter, so I apologise for parroting it. They have done... They've done several impossibles with this match, but my favourite impossible, we've talked about this, it is just about impossible to book an organic feeling uh, triple threat, an organic feeling three-way dance. There's always kind of one person that's coming as the as the extra, or you've had to have a bit of a contrivance to put that third person in. A 60-minute draw, following a 30-minute draw, following Paige being able to beat Omega is the perfect crafting of a three-way dance between them. Like they, they've done it, they've arrived at another seemingly like improbable mountain that nobody can climb in wrestling. It's just brilliant, it's brilliant. I usually am the nerd who pays too much attention. It's a reach, man. Reach it. <laughs> I, for whatever reason, maybe because the Kenny Omega Danielson match was just so fresh in my head because I thought, well, it's gonna have to beat this. But I just had that match in my head as the one that I want to see how this beats it, and. For whatever reason, I was thinking, oh, it's 30 minutes long, this match. Yeah, me I too. Must not have listened, I must not have remembered that um, the title match, so it's an hour, or heard the actual introduction at the start. How many matches have you seen? And Christ Almighty, we lived through the Capital Wrestling Centre and reviewed it. This Capital Wrestling Centre era where you're thinking, Jesus Christ, wrap this up. There's no need for it to go well, this Is it long. an Apollo Cruz, Alistair Black match? 27 minutes. Yeah, I was thinking so the so the NXT before the revamp where it was like you go in 16 minutes just to try and that's that's the exact number I had in my head there. So 16, 16 minutes, minutes like... to artlessly pursue a quote unquote critically acclaimed match, and you're thinking that's just going on too long. When I wait a second, you saying triple H doesn't know how to time matches. Yeah, shut up. When I realized Oh, hang on, then nowhere near the finish, and it's 25 minutes. I went, Oh my god, I get another out, I get another half an hour of this. <laughs> I was honestly buzzing. I hadn't just for whatever reason, I'm an idiot, maybe. I just hadn't realized, oh Christ, I've got an extra half an hour. I kind of knew they were going towards the draw, but that worked in its favor, in my opinion, because when you got so close to the end, you're thinking, well, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think Danielson's gotten beat, or I think Paige has gotten yeah. beat. Uh, even to the last five seconds, I thought they're going to wrap this up in 59.55 in the didn't. And that means oh, I get more of this. Incredible. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, we should probably talk about some of the other stuff that happened on this show, uh, because... Yeah, you had a second half of this incredible um, TV show. Still mad to call it a TV show. The fact of get it on a weekly basis yeah. now, incredible. Um, so we go backstage. There's the super click. Uh, Bobby Fish is there uh, as well. Adam Cole's talking about best friends. When are they going to start learn to stop messing with them? We've proven that you can't hang with us. We've left you laying multiple times. Uh, Nick Jackson eventually suggests we have an eight man tag on Rampage. And Matt Jackson suggests that they super kick Sue in the face. <laughs> to which um, she even tweeted Greggy about it, asking how she can make him see these tweets. Those pesky books are threatening her, basically. And love to know your thoughts on this, Michael Hamflet. Adam Cole teased a Christmas present for the Young Bucks next week on Dynamite. And I just so happened to see Kyle O'Reilly tweeted the gift from Seven. What's in the box? Could we? Well, I mean, I saw this segment and I was going, because there's a Joy Division <laughs> t-shirt in that box, isn't there? There is favourites. Um, oh, this is class. All of this was great. Um, like, I Let this be Kyle O'Reilly, no matter how obvious it already feels. This yeah. is one of them ones that everybody wants the obvious. Every Like the box, for example, like uh, the box is a prop, but there's probably a prop inside the prop. Something like an armband would be pretty cool. Yes. And for and for Cole and Fish and O'Reilly to be like, Cole, I'm with you. Super click, super click, woo, super kicks. But also I'm an armband guy with these two. And <laughs> Cole trying to like being very Adam Cole about it and saying, we're all the same. We're just a little bit different. And that's absolutely fine. Like that's a, a, a nice way for Cole to play both sides for a little while until we get the inevitable Red Dragon Young Bucks tag. And Cole is perhaps forced to make a choice if it indeed does go that way. Um. <laughs> not just beating up Sue. They're gonna retire Sue. They're gonna have to <laughs> shut. A, they're gonna have to shut a cage match profile down. Absolutely, like just an incredible choice of words. Great. Um, after the match last week didn't blow me away. Um, and the best friend stuff isn't for me generally. This promo still give me this like, oh, the young bucks are back feeling. So I'm as I'm I'm, as, I'm probably as invested in this as I possibly can be now that they've promised to retire someone's mother. <laughs> How hard would they have to kick her to super, to retire her? I mean, it's uh, what a <laughs> wonderful uh, black comedy guy that was from Nick Jackson. Yes, this is clearly a Kyle O'Reilly tease. I think the armband, my esteemed colleague, has absolutely nailed it. I like the absurdity of they've got a box. Just, they should have had like a, <laughs> a five foot nine box, like. I hope that he opens it up and says, We've got some 12 ounce curls. <laughs> That's an old, that'd be a good rib at Jim Connett's expense, isn't it? So you put that in a box, he gets over. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you write down in your copy the, the, the Twitter post, what's in the box, uh, instantly we're going to get like 100,000 more listens. Okay. Copy that. <laughs> Wouldn't increase the listenership that much yeah but you know it's we honestly we go in the charts from one to i mean still one but you know 
More one. Two's further behind. <laughs> Two's further behind. Honestly, this podcast is properly unleashed now. So, you know, I'm, I'm very excited. Absolutely, me too. Right, then we got Wardlow versus Matt Seidel with Sean Spears at ringside. He's, he's an accountability buddy. Quite right. Um, Seidel did get some offence in. I feel a bit morbid with the way I was yesterday pitching. I think Wardlow should kill him, basically, because we sort of got this. He got he got some... He, again, he uses his quickness to avoid the power attacks. And I really like Matt Seidel. Kick in Wardlow as much as he can. Some high kicks, goes for a spinning heel kick. Wardlow catches it and goes, right, up you go. Power bombs him. He's done at that point. But this is Wardlow. He's he's a crowd pleaser. Another power bomb. Another power bomb. Sean Spears gets on the mic and goes, all right, buddy, let's, uh, let's wrap this up, pin him. But the crowd, is, as much as I think they like Matt Seidel, are going, one more time. So, yeah, Wardlow does as they ask, picks him up. Power bombs him again. Only like a two-minute match. Um, but he gets the pinfall victory. Post-match, in comes Spears and says, look, buddy, one and done. We don't get paid by the hour. That That's a little excessive. Um, but seeing some here, gets on his chair, just twats side out there a few times and does this wonderful sort of shudder of like, oh, it's nice to get that out of my system. Uh, and then in the midst of all this, he gets a phone call. Guess who it is? It's Maxwell Jacob Friedman. And he says, yep, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we're just in the ring now. Uh, yeah, he's not he's here with me. Yeah, all right, yeah, I'll pass it on. Uh, right, and you need to go and pick up some champagne for MJF's victory party later. I'll drive. You can just stay wearing that. Majestic, this. All of this is completely majestic. I loved one thing about the match, which was basically an angle masquerading yes. as a match, is that there was one like pretty scary potential near miss. Except it wasn't because Wardlow's brute strength <laughs> is such that he just picked Seidal up from near disaster and then subjected him to disaster <laughs> in the form of absolutely incredible strength that one of those like serendipitous near misses that wrestling's full of at its best. What I loved most about this match wasn't the match, it was the opponent in the match. The idea is they are very much building Wardlow. It feels like year three, Wardlow's going to be what Jungle Boy was in year two, where he gets made. Year three, Wardlow's getting made, and I'm buzzing about that. I'm buzzing for him because everyone loves Wardlow, and everyone in the crowd loves Wardlow, which just advanced the story wonderfully. He's killed Wheel Eater in about a minute and a half. Some unnamed jabron in about a minute and a half the other week. And he didn't take that much longer to just melt Matt Seidel, who has earlier this year taken Kenny Omega to a fabulous low-key 12-minute um, match. Did he take Punk to his limit as well? He had a really long match with yeah. Punk. Um, he's a guy who's there to lose, but God damn it, it'll take his, it'll take something out of you in the process. Not with Wardlow. <laughs> and I just love the evolution yeah. of the um, calibre of his opponents. They are all meat doesn't matter if you're a new up-and-coming independent guy. doesn't matter if you're some local who's been recruited just for a bloodshedding. It doesn't even matter if you're a guy who can go toe-to-toe with the best, even if he doesn't often win. Wardlow's going through those goddamn rankings. What did you make of uh, Sean Spears telling Wardlow what to do here, Hamlet? 
Incredible. What a delicious use of simultaneously the fact that the crowd love Wardlow and Wardlow quite loves being a crowd pleaser. And Sean Spears legitimately diligently doing his job as an accountability buddy. Like the, that's him performing the role that was asked of him by an MJF who's getting increasingly nervous about his monster, like like fleeing the nest, basically. I also adore the implication that MJF wasn't even watching. Yeah. Where, where are you, what, what are you guys doing? Where's my shampoo? Oh, you're in the ring. All right. Okay. Like that, <laughs> the, the, the other side of that conversation is as good as what we heard. Um, all of this was great. What, what fantastic economical pro wrestling television all of this was. They could have realistically put anyone in there with Wardlow to tell the story, but there's just, there's always an additional layer. And again, I'm, I know I've just said this. I want to say it again. It is so perfect that it was Seidel because he's over to a degree where the majority of the AEW fans know him as someone who's can work a competitive match. And the fact that he's doing this to Seidel sends a message to those fans of like, yeah, we'll tinker about, we'll profile certain people certain weeks because we like to rotate the cast to keep things fresh and all the rest of it. This was very much an explicit pay attention to goddamn Wardlow. We are doing things with him. And because this is the company that breeds investment and trust, you can't not get high on the prospect of the Wardlow run after a segment like this. I don't like it when I hear some people say, oh, I see they've dropped the whole, you know, for a brief, brief period. Oh, I've dropped, see they've dropped the whole Wardlow MGF infighting. No, they haven't. Just sometimes they get on and then there's just little triggers. The slow burn just benefits the whole world in itself yeah. of AEW. Like it truly does. Like nothing gets dropped. There's continuity to everything. And that is like, that has an indirect impact on how you receive everything else on the show. And just to make another point on this, I disagree that people say, well, you can't do this and do the stuff with Britt Baker and the name completely. Jamie Hayter. Jamie Hayter. Yes, you can. Cause you go, well, that's just happened with Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker. And that's like a microcosm of what we've seen here. I, I, I disagree with, with that argument. I think, yeah, you don't do them concurrently. But when that happens and, you know, Wardlow's there ex- exemplifying a lot of things that Jamie Hayter's is doing, you go, well, I know I can have faith that this is going to be paid off yeah. eventually. But, you know, some people are idiots. The, there was one, this might be a generous take slightly, but it was just something I appreciate in headcanon. The idea that because we know Dante Martin and Matt Seidel have tagged together and are friends that MJF has given out the instruction, absolutely murder this guy because I want to be in Dante Martin's head in the main event. You can do me a favour by having him be more worried about his friend than winning the Dynamite Diamond Ring. And so even two ties together. And tell Sean Spears to tell him, get it done quickly as well. So I've mm-hmm. got more time for me to slag off these bell ends yeah. before my match. Uh, right, we've got a video package for Penelope Ford and Tay Conti. I'll be honest, I didn't write down what they said because I was sighing so goddamn much about this. <laughs> Why does this feud have to continue? The Bunny and Penelope Ford versus Tay J. Look, I like Tay Conti. I like Penelope Ford. I've just seen him a lot together. Um, she's sick of Penelope Ford, basically, Tay Conti. She promises to finish it. There's a submission match on Rampage Stage. Yep. Look, if nothing else, <laughs> if it's like we back on Raw, yep, that happened. If nothing else, I don't want to see a retread of Rampage's worst filler feud either. But I've been, and again, it's tiny steps, so tiny in the fact that you feel like, well, it's better than home stuff and it's not worthy of discussion. I've been extremely critical of AEW building up someone on telly in the women's division specifically. 
and then once they have the match and they lose the title match, that's the end of them. They are telling you, invest in Ty Conti. I don't hate it, but I can't love it either because it doesn't feel particularly hot. It's going to occupy a really weird space on a super odd rampage as well. They had the advantage on this dynamite of the live crowd knowing what they were going to get next. And I'm assuming this was another taped rampage, wasn't it? So like yes. everything, everything they were booking on this show was going to take place after the show. The crowd were given those absurd multi-man tags on the same broadcast that would be broken up by a singles submission match from the women's division that sort of promises time that works against Sidgwick's point the other week of, ah, oh, Jade Cargill cancels a match where it's going to go 18 seconds. That's a match. It's a women's match. Honest. Like this is the sort of polar opposite of that. So I think that like they have at very least given this the best opportunity to succeed, given that if anything, the big worry is that one of those big matches on Friday will cancel the other out. Yeah. Uh, then we got a video package from uh, Spooky Malachi Black. He's talking about how evil humans are. Human nature is violent and we should accept that. Uh, he talks about the teachings that the house has bestowed upon him because the house always wins. Uh, is there someone in a hood on their knees? He's sort of christening them and he puts a necklace on them. He spits in their face and they spew on the floor. But the key thing here, Michael Hampler, is the line, now you're so much more than a king. It's Brody King, isn't it? Yeah. I'm uh, I'm not into this spooky story this <laughs> time. It's time for Brody King to debut, and that's quite nice. Um, Brody King... I have not seen a great deal of, but what I have, I find him to be one of the more... Uh, AW could be rightfully criticised for not signing the most unique talent out there of late. Brody King is far more so than some of the other recent guys they've brought in. So I think there's something there's something more interesting to look for there. And this is, if nothing else, I will give them a little bit of credit. This stuff, this type of pro wrestling isn't for me, but it is some character development away from the mid-card fog like, I'm actually more interested in Malachi Black arsing around doing this and I'm in yet another match with Pack or fanning on with, like, having a blindfold match with Pack or something. So away from the sludge, I kind of had a bit of interest in this again. I have been a little bit cool on Malachi Black <laughs> as of late um, because of the sludge and the fog of the Cody stuff. I tend... I don't like supernatural gothic stuff in pro wrestling. Like, I never have. Like, even when you're a frigging 14-year-old, not discerning dork, just, I'll take any Midian match you'll give me. (laughs) Wrestling and the crowds are hot and I'm 14 years old. Even during that time, I preferred Midian to The Undertaker. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, The Undertaker has had great matches and all the rest of it, but, like, The Undertaker and Kane were the two guys in the Attitude Era that I was like, this is lame, goofy nonsense that even I, as a 14-year-old Mark, just think is lame. Get them away from Austin. They can have their rubbish matches together, right? (laughs) Uh, Don't do it with Austin. Austin's good. Don't do it with Rock either. In fact, just jump into WCW if you want. (laughs) And yet, right, I kind of liked the way this was all filmed. Yes. The verbiage is way, way less intelligent than it thinks it is. Mm. And it descends <laughs> on the laughable as a result. Like, it's not saying anything profound. But I don't know, like, I liked the... It was quite 
stalk the imagery of the um, actual mm. vignette. I was into it, maybe in spite of myself. It's followed by Serena D versus Hikaru Shida. They are 1-1, if I'm not mistaken. This was sort of the rubber match between the two of them. Uh, D actually attacked Shida before the bell. Uh, Shida hoys her kendo stick at her. Uh, eventually, the officials get them separated. Starts the match, immediately falls, falls straight back into a brawl. Uh, Sheeta puts Deeb in the corner, drop kick, springboard, crossbody, but Deeb rolls through into a knee bar, uh, forcing Sheeta to the ropes, obviously targeting that knee of Sheeta's that's been hit before. Uh, Sheeta goes for a knee in the corner, but Deeb avoids it, puts on a figure four across the ring post and continues to target the knee as we head to a break. When we come back, Sheeta fires up. Lays in some uh, right hands, step up into Guri for a two delayed vertical suplex, another two count off the back of that. They fight on the top rope. Deeb gets control, though, because, again, she targets Shida's knee uh, and she puts puts her down with a neck breaker across the bloody steel cable thing in the corner. That gets a near fall. Um, Deeb goes for multiple twisting neck breakers, but Shida powers out into a falcon arrow to make her comeback. They are jockeying for position. They're trading uh, cradles, but Deeb puts her in a single leg Boston Crab, just cranking on it. Sheeta won't tap, though. Uh, Deeb, frustrated, exposes the top turnbuckle, um, goes to send Sheeta into it. Sheeta blocks it. They trade some cradles. I think um, then as Deeb is going for a submission on the leg, Sheeta kicks her out of it. She goes face first into the turnbuckle. Sheeta jackknifes Deeb into a cradle to get the pinfall victory. Uh, Hamlet, you've been very excited about these two stepping back in the ring together. Your thoughts? Oh, I love this one. Like it was a the, the opening match was going to be really tough to follow for the whole evening, but I never had any doubt that these two were going to be able to do it, and I wasn't even particularly worried that the crowd was sort of noticeably quiet and like understandably exhausted as well for like the first five minutes because when the wrestling's this good, you really do let the wrestlers wrestle and they'll win them back round. Uh, Serena Deeb. Like, is there anybody in wrestling who works a body part with as much enthusiasm as she does? <laughs> the stuff she puts in, I think you said it was wrenching in that half crab, but there was three or four times in this match where she couldn't have looked happier to be working a leg. It is no wonder, and this is a point about her psychology, not just gushing praise, it is no wonder that she yet again raced for the figure four attempt, I think it was, that eventually was her undoing. Because that's like, you kid wanting to get to Disneyland and asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? She just cannot wait to put a figure four back on. She just cannot wait to just get back to the business of what she was doing, which was just inflicting such tremendous pain. It's why that chop lock the other week was as good as it was, because nobody looks like they enjoy it so much. It's got a goal, which is to win the match. But an in-character trait of being the professor of professor wrestling is luxuriating in the joy of doing it better than others. This was such a great contrast to... The, I think I've said this before, the fire, the babyface fire that Sheeda has found through working with Deeb. AEW, this is not going to be a rant on the women's division this week because this was a better women's match than anything WWE have managed all year outside of Sasha Banks and Bianca Belair. And anyone with eyes knows that. But what they did particularly dirty on Hikari Sheeda was kind of like disappeared her off to dark after she lost the belt. And that doesn't have to take the steam out of a babyface. If you're not showing that much willing to win that belt back, like who are you? This feud has done that for Sheeda. I'm glad she won. I think sometimes, you know, we're all guilty of this. We kind of get lost in uh, in our favourites or who we want and things like that. She's the babyface. 
and she was wrong at one point. She was battered in the face with her own trophy, and heels sometimes need to get what's coming to them. Serena Deeb got so obsessed with how much she loves being a cruel piece of sh- that she got beat by a wrestler who she's actually been the one to stoke the flames of in the first place. This was an absolutely fantastic television match um, on a level above three quarters of, like, let's be honest, on some pretty bland dynamites with some pretty bland dudes. This dwarfed the level of that. And on any other episode, I think we'd be, I think the praise would be even more gushing. They had a, like a hard job here and it was admirable in the circumstances, but awesome on its own terms. Yeah, I would describe this as not quite as good as the second match they had, but the perfect third match for the rivalry Mm. in terms of the story they were trying to tell, um, in terms of the increased um, personal tension between each uh, performer. This was a unvarnished technical scrap with just added animosity thrown in there. Like genuine hatred was conveyed. Some of the work here was outstanding. It was a shame that... For the structure of the television show, you kind of couldn't do Paige Danielson in the second hour because if they come out at like two minutes past what, 2 a.m. American time, you know, right? Well, it's, either there's an angle alert, which will detract from the viewing experience of the match, or it's going an hour. Like, so you kind of had to do it this way around. And it was to the detriment of the first five minutes, which was a shame that mm-hmm. I couldn't, you know, I can't no sell that. But the second half of this match was really, really incredibly strong. Um, Like, I loved the idea that the heel isn't an inferior professional wrestler. She's just way much more of an arsehole of a professional wrestler. (laughs) She's got what was coming to her. What a fabulous finish. Nothing groundbreaking. Nothing earth-shattering. Just the right finish to... You want to protect everyone to a degree. The word protect, we say every single podcast. We're frightened to say it because it feels like you're making an excuse on behalf of the wrestling promotion that you're accused of shilling for. You're meant to protect everyone to a degree. You can kill the jobbers. Kill them. Like, drop them on their heads, huh? <laughs> you're meant to protect everyone who you've got kind of plans for, and you do that with artful finishes and without breaking the mold why would you want to triangular wheel like you got a circular one and this was just absolutely brilliant and hopefully it will let them roll on past very nice we talk a lot about people using their environments whoever has thought of taking off the middle bit of the turnbuckle therefore like all of this is wooden metal that is covered by softer things if you can cheat and get away with exposing some of that wooden metal that nobody's thought to do before go and do that the fact that she already gives herself a break by resting on the steel steps with the Bret Hart ring post figure four is awesome enough without them thinking nobody's ever exposed the little metal girder that I might be able to smash a face into I'll give that a bash. <laughs> yeah. like, like next level operationist indeed and it's a part of the ring, which is itself a weapon. The canvas is a weapon. The ropes are a weapon. It didn't feel like she was cheating. It wasn't a foreign object. Yes. It was a native object. Uh, right. We get an interview with the varsity blondes. Tony Schiavone is asking them about the Malachi Black uh, blasting Julia Hart in the face with his fluids. Um, and uh, Mate. what? Huh? Anyway. Um... <laughs> Max Caster. Listen. Um, and what the subtext for any younger listeners okay. um, was calm. <laughs> it was was Von Wagner. Calm Tuesday. <laughs> calm Malachi. Calm face do, on Tuesday. Do, uh, let's do that. Do you know Von Wagner was a zombie at Backlash? Was he? A zombie to this yeah. day? 
Yes, yeah, it's the most natural role ever. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about, um, yes, Griff Carrison, not happy uh, about the fact that, you know, last week, lights go out, uh, lights come on, he, he missed Julia Hart, and then the lights go out and he disappeared. Like a real man, he says, yeah, you're a coward. He says, I'm going to bring the fight to you, Malachi Black. Pullman says, hey, 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 calm down, buddy. Don't let him get in your head. And Griff's just furious. He shoves him. He says, look, if you don't fight this battle, I will. And he tells Malachi Black, I'm going to break his jaw. Um, thoughts on all, all that, pamphlet? So I'm going to credit um, something here that was either... I, I, was a, I gave Brian Pillman a bit of grief for this last week, but maybe this was on me or they've spotted something and are going with it. I thought Brian Pillman looked a bit silly when he couldn't decide whether or not to sell elements of the poison, <laughs> yes. the poison fluid that's come near me, but not exactly in me. And I think this was either they've spotted that or that was a detail all along. There is a sense here that the poison mist of fluidity and time is going to be a corrupting influence on Julia Hart and perhaps too on Brian Pillman. If Malachi Black is going to form a stable, which is what people do in AEW, and we've got Brody King now, um, Maybe this is the end of the Varsity Blondes, but the beginning of Pillman and Julia Hart going with Malachi Black. And Griff Garrison, in that respect, is absolutely the right choice to single out as the, the babyface breakaway from it. So I, I think I like all of this more than I would have done last week. Can I bury Brian Pillman's T-shirt? What was it? I didn't notice that. What was it? Cancel, cancel culture. It was... Ooh. I don't know if you wore it on the night or if it was like in a backstage. I've definitely seen a recent picture of Brian Pillman Jr. in a cancel, cancel culture t-shirt. How, after Dark Side of the Ring, when you finally had people worked into thinking, let's be nice at Brian Pillman Jr. He's had a harder life than me and indeed most. He wears a t-shirt like that. What a, it's brain dead. Anything you want to say about this segment? Uh, yes, I thought Griff Garrison showed a decent amount of fire. Yeah, yeah. He's not going to win. He'll mount a little challenge. He'll do a, a decent hope spot. But he believed it. He believed that he's going to actually break Malachi Black's jaw. And I didn't really feel like he was performing those lines. So I thought it was a good performance from him. And I said the reason why Malachi Black is targeting Julia Hart is for the contrast of the innocent and the evil. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we get a joyous recap of Hook's debut on Rampage, and then Eddie Kingston is backstage. He's still pissed off. Talks about a He's a liar, though. How's that? We'll get to it. Okay, he says it's going to be him, uh, proud and powerful, um, his best friend, Penner, uh, Phoenix, um, and they're going to take on 2.0, Daniel Garcia, and basically whoever they pick. He says Daniel Garcia is an ugly man. Wrong. That's right, he's a liar. Yeah. Maybe he's talking about, you know, the... the boring bit of ugly which doesn't actually count are you ugly on the inside yeah well still got a good bone structure so, <laughs> was that really bad life in, the, in this zoo in which we all shag he says uh, regardless get some friends basically i'll see you on rampage don't be scared partner we didn't include daniel garcia as an honorable mention in our pieces oh, list honestly we should just do the entire roster basically save time that's there's a Every piece. everybody except and just slag off <laughs> one person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, excited for this. Sean Spears, did we mention him? We must have. I think you him. might have actually. Yeah, I think we must have. But I don't know how we got near Sean Spears and didn't go, who's that guy next to him? Yes, doesn't matter. Um, we can obviously preview a lot of this on the rampage preview, which will be out tomorrow. But uh, yeah, I love, I love, I just love the way he says partner, first of all, but I also love pissed off Eddie Kingston. Yeah. 
Just a shame Chris Jericho involved in all this. <laughs> My mate, let's move on. No, it's because he's doing the talk. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, an exciting prospect, this Sitch. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, I know. Like Eddie Kingston's so phenomenal at building feuds with one person against whom he has this grudge that I'm kind of ready to see him do something firm. I, I worry, and I, they're going to be swimming against the tide if they try, I think. The more Eddie Kingston mentions how much he misses John Moxley, the more I'm concerned that John Moxley is going to come straight back and drill him with the paradigm shift when he returns. Oh, yeah. I, I, after, it seems impossible that he can't be anything but a baby face, but maybe Moxley just wants to do it. You know, maybe he does want to be a heel still because he hey, was Kingston going great guns before he walked away. Yeah. Kingston got punk booty, he can do whatever the hell he wants. He's, he's, true, yeah. he's indeed the king. Uh, right, main event time, Dante Martin versus MJF for the beautiful diamond ring. Out comes MJF. Uh, not quite the reception he got in Long Island, this. Um, you suck. So he obviously gets on the mic and tells Texas that their daughter swallows. Um, maybe if he was more like them, they'd like him. Anti-education pro incest. <laughs> I just, anyway. I, before, before you go on and recap the rest of this fight, I just want to isolate that particular line because I thought... That was a very, I mean, obviously MJF was probably able to think on his feet, but I think that was very much intended to be a gag at uh, Bully Ray's expense because that was his like go-to in ECW. For heat! Fucking heat! Your <laughs> mother told me how! Like all that sort of stuff was, he was bang gaming at that when he was screaming in fans' faces in ECW. And I just thought MJF was flexing here because it was like, right, I'll give you your Bully Ray heat thing and then I'll get it a completely different way because I can do it the proper way as well. And I loved, I loved and appreciate. He went for that first, almost as if to say, right, kid glove stuff. Let me brush that out of the way, and then I can get onto the business of actually making money with a heat promo instead. Yeah. So he turns his attentions to CM Punk and says, "Punk said it about me that I only go for low hanging fruit." Well, the second he got nervous last week, he just slagged off the local sports team for ten minutes. How highbrow, he says. Uh, especially of the part where uh, Punk claimed MJF needs to stop running and face him like a man so he can get a title shot. MJF says, I didn't realise that an undefeated streak and underwhelming matches makes you championship material. He just thought it made him the new Ryback. I mean, that's incredible. That's an unbelievable line. You know their history as well. That's class. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He said... uh, Beat, I'm gonna beat beat Dante. Win the you know three peat this diamond ring. Um, I'm ta- you know t- you're talented. You're just in a lot of trouble, Dante. You're not punk. Uh, sorry, MJF isn't punk. He says I, I don't care about the younger talents. I'm the only top talent that young, that's young and that matters. He's about to become yes a three time dynamite diamond ring champion. He says Dante has got the verbal ability. <laughs> of a Helen Keller on Quaaludes and he can beat Dante Martin with a headlock takeover. He doesn't claim to be the best in the world. Michael Sidgwick, he just is. Yes, class. Um, I think, if I recall correctly, me and Hamlet are pulls apart on Helen Keller crack. Mm. I don't think he likes it. I I think it's the low-hanging fruit he's shooting on punk for. I think people have gone there before. People have gone there before. Yeah, but I don't know, like, I was thinking with MJF, is he the one that gets away with that sort of crap because part of it is inbuilt and it was character, or am I just giving him a free pass? I think that's rubbish, but I thought the rest of this ruled. Yeah, the rest of this ruled. The Ryback line was absolutely sensational because he's, this is precision. 
the whole idea of throwing zingers at people, right, is more for the audience than it is like actually advancing a storyline. And I'm now glad that it's really getting into the actual storyline of AEW itself and not this. I'm going to have a go at what I think you are. Like they're actually starting to hate each other, and that's great. The idea of a personal insult is like you're meant to make someone feel like, oh, you dick. You're meant to make someone feel rubbish about themselves. If someone said to me, you've got no chin, I'd say, oh, yeah, I know, that's why I have like a little bit of a beard. <laughs> that would be one thing. If someone said, you're a pretentious arsehole who uses the M-dash too much, I'd be like, oh, Christ. <laughs> you've just looked into my soul. The idea that MJF could possibly compare CM Punk and Ryback, knowing what we know CM Punk thinks about Ryback, that is precision. I'm going to make you feel horrible about yourself. Inspired. Um, Hamlet, is it just me? Uh, it's baby steps, this. But does it feel like he's tiptoeing closer going from the mids onto Ryback? He's chronicling CM Punk's going history. Going down the line here. We're heading towards Colt Cabana, aren't we, eventually, as we get closer oh, to the match? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It, it was always going to be, with MJF, it was always going to be like if and when he'd be given the gift of the Colt Cabana line because there was so many people that could have used this at CM Punk's expense. But I think in character, it has to be uh, MJF getting it. On the Ryback and the Miz lines, I love that WWE is so inept that their characters are being used as zingers for these two wrestlers. And yet they make it company policy not to do it in response. Like Roman Reigns could be doing one of his big, boring, head of the table speeches and then say something like, you know, there's a guy that has to work 60 minutes on a school night because he couldn't last 30 with the head of the table. But they would never dream of that. Like they could take like a free hit, uh, like uh, countless guys that have like people, all these bad faith actors that love talking about people that have made the move. You could use those moves to sort of make AW appear like the inferior place that rest have ran to. But the silly old bastard believes you can't do that. And yet they're scoring points off some of their biggest, most pushed stars. It's great. I didn't have a thought, but it's too good. I'm going to save it for a tweet. Okay. <laughs> I want the numbers. <laughs> Decision men of mega fans will forgive. Yeah, of course they will. They'll, they'll read it about when do the Yanks wake up and get the most engagement <laughs> at about 2 p.m. UK time. They can read that one. Uh, right. Let's get on to it. Dante Martin versus MJF for the Dynamite Diamond Ring. Of course, MJF starts the match. You guessed it. Headlock takeover. Uh, gets a near fall off the back of it. But Dante. He's just so talented. He outmaneuvers MJF early on, uses his athleticism, hits a 450 knee drop pretty much early on in the match to uh, to get a near fall. Goes to that springboard of his, but MJF just rolls out to the floor, a bit like Danielson earlier on. Gets out of the way of a dive, um, runs round. Obviously, Dante's after him. Uh, Dante slides in. He's done that thing where the heel comes in and then the baby face comes in and he drops his elbow on him, except Dante just rolled in and rolled straight back out again. So MJF looked like a bit of a twat there. Um, uh, Dante takes control, goes to that double springboard moonsault, but MJF countered it and sent Dante all the way into the barricade on the floor. He uh, hits a power bomb, stacks Dante up uh, with his feet on the ropes for the leverage, uh, but the referee not happy, kicking MJF's legs away and admonishing him for the illegal pin. Uh, eventually, Dante gets per perched on the top rope, uh, but fights back, missile drop kick to start his comeback. He backflips out of the way of a tackle and hits 
just a bonkers series of moves. A dive to MJF on the floor, uh, tope thing off the top turnbuckle, uh, bloody Fosbury flop, preposterous, as I said. And then a mad shooting star press on MJF out on the floor, um, to which the, the, the quite rightly, the commentators just gave him all the compliments in the world because what a talent they've got in their hands here. Um, so Dante back in the ring, starts raining down strikes in the corner, rolls up MGF a series of times for a couple of two counts. Uh, and then out of nowhere, MGF catches Dante with, yes, a headlock takeover for a near fall. They trade cradles. Then Dante nearly wins the match by hitting MGF with a headlock takeover. Really like that touch. But MJF powers out of it, Liger Bomb, near fall. Finally, though, Dante manages to hit that double springboard moonsault, which always defies gravity when I see it. He's got him one. He's got the he's got the match one. He's got him pinned. One, two. Dante Martin suddenly realizes that Ricky Starks has popped up at ringside and popped MJF's foot on the bottom rope to break up the pinfall. What a git. The commentators admonish Taz for this, who basically, I think, says, I'm just sat here doing commentary, guys. I'm just asking questions. Um, <laughs> in the midst of all this, MJF manages to lock on salt of the earth on Dante Martin, who has to tap. The three P has happened, baby. MJF has the beautiful diamond ring for the third time. We'll talk post-match in a second, Sige. What do you make of it all? And the first thing I want to point out is that Ricky Stark's facial expressions when he was doing his bit were incredible. Just don't want to forget that. His, uh, his facial expressions were awesome. Okay. Another thing I want to mention is that this crowd, they did pick up for the end of Sheeta theme, but there was still a suggestion of, oh, they're never going to be as loud as they were for the duration of the first match. When MJF made his entrance, that is absolute megastar stuff. Yeah. They booed him out of the building. It was as if they'd just walked in and were buzzing all over again. I said on the preview yesterday that MJF was going to do something, I don't know what, in this match to make you want to see Danny Martin's high spots more, that northeast southwest gimmick that he devised to just roll out of the ring, make people think, are oh, you twat, you've deprived us of the excitement. And in fact, no, you've just doubled up the excitement because he does his ridiculous things. Um, it was great storytelling, great heel versus babyface. Like showed us in a way that created a platform on which for Dante Martin to do his spectacular stuff. My only real issue with the match itself was the spectacular stuff wasn't as precise as I've come to expect from Dante Martin. I thought when I saw, how the hell do you do a rolling 450? That's ridiculous. And it's like, oh, can he do it? Because you just need MGF like, Right in the face. <laughs> right in the face. That might be too ambitious. That might have been, sorry, too ambitious for one of the most ambitious wrestlers on the planet right now. There was the springboard shooting star that looked insane. He only just clipped him, and Excalibur was great on the call. Uh, so I, I would hit with a knee. Yes, I would describe Dante Martin's performance individually in this match is slightly over exuberant. But you know, it's his dynamite main event. It's his big moment. He's still green, as great as he is. So, you know, you can kind of excuse that. And it didn't, I wouldn't describe them as botches necessarily. No, 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 no. I mean, he botched it by me in the face. Like, that's not, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, nothing that was glaring or like humiliated the lad. Like, yeah. when you see someone, an aerial artist botch, it's worse than any other botch. Um, but mostly, this was a really, really good match. 
yeah, I couldn't decide between if whether Martin was having a slightly off night or, and I'm not saying that he would have wanted to botch on purpose, but if the over-exuberance, as Cedric put it, was by design, because this is the biggest match he's had, this is the closest he's come to fighting for like a major title. Um, he knows it's like this enormous opportunity. He's broken away from Team Taz, so he's going to be kind of like full of himself as well. He's going to be feeling really good about all of this. I wondered how much of those, again, you, you don't really want to be setting up a situation where you contrive in a slip or trip or stumble or anything or make any of the work look bad. But I was wondering how much of the off night was supposed to be maybe part of the story they were telling and just to, again, heighten ultimately the gap in experience at this point, if not in age, certainly in experience between where MJF is and where Dante Martin is. Dante Martin can do all that stuff, but one mistake will cost him because MJF will drag him into the deep and there's no way back. So I, like that might read as a bit of a generous take, but I'm only being generous because I had so much fun with the match. I thought the chemistry was great. It made me want to watch it again. Um, MJF, as always, and it is as always, it just doesn't really miss, I don't think, anymore. In competitive, in a competitive environment, he's quickly becoming AEW's most reliable wrestler. And his whole gimmick is that he wrestles as little as he can get away with. <laughs> So it just it just speaks to I don't think he's underrated anymore because I think from the moment he had that like sort of banger with Jungle Boy, you could see that there was far more than just a, a gimmick heel here. But I with every passing longer MJF match, I'm just seeing I'm just seeing like the, the credibility that he's bringing to this. He's it's funny that you mentioned him and Britt Baker simultaneously having this sort of. I guess you could say like they're the pillars perhaps most worried about crumbling and that's why they've got these two heavies and this kind of fractious relationship between these bodyguard-like figures. Um, MJF is the one that can be more confident in that because he's, he is probably the best pillar of the lot. Mm. He's got the most to offer, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wish someone could have seen, you know, a final between Dante Martin and MJF oh, when the involvement of Team, Team Taz as a result of uh, Dante Martin turning on Team Taz. During Lax for his show. If someone had called that, they would be pretty bloody good at their job. Mr. Tito over here. Right. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about what post-match because post-match, FTR come out, celebrate with MJF. Uh, they're in the ring. Um, the lights go out. I did have a bit of an issue with this. You don't need the lights to go out for a Sting and Darby Allen thing. I get what they're doing. Very nice, very good. But I just it was I had a mix of emotions when that happened because. Lights going out implied, well, for me, implies something different. And it wasn't necessarily disappointing that it was Sting and Darby Allen popping up, but it was like, oh, it's Sting and Darby Allen. Anyway, uh, they brawl uh, with FTR and MJF. Uh, MJF not only gives them the numbers advantage, but also uh, punches Sting right in the cock, which will help them as well. <laughs> um, they're getting beat down. The crowd is chanting for who you think they're chanting for. And then he obliges CM Punk. Runs out with a baseball bat, chases them off, and then gets on the microphone saying, oh, you don't want to do it one-on-one -on -one in Texas? Fine. Next week, I'm going to bring my friends against MJF and your friends. A six-man tag. CM Punk, CM Punk Sting, Darby, uh, Sting and Darby uh, against MJF and FTR in tag team action. Yes, please, Michael Hamper. Yeah, it's... It's nice, this. Um, I'm with you on the lights out thing. I, th I, I don't get it. I, you, it's one thing to play with an expectation that somebody is going to surprise, um, is going to make a surprise appearance. Obviously, there was the, I was going to say the 
excitement, but for me, it'd be nervousness about Wyndham Rotunda, but there was also... I thought for a split second it was going to go... I saw five minutes of the Danielson-Page match, and all my fears yeah. went away, because I knew this You're just like above them. That's it, isn't it? It's like, it's not this company. They, they don't do this. So I was like, that was gone, but there was like, well, what about maybe like the Briscoes or something? Because there was a, like, I'd seen a tease or something with them and FTR. Anyway, point is, like, it's, it's you kind of maybe setting people up for a bit of a disappointment if you put the lights on and it's people that they've already seen before, not least people that are kind of semi-embroiled in a feud with them. Um, nice because they went to the trouble of re-establishing a bit of uh, tension between Darby Allen Sting and FTR ahead of this sudden neat coming together of all these wrestlers at the same time they i can appreciate that they thought enough about wednesday's conclusion to build it into friday's show yeah because of malachi black using the lights i've been conditioned to think it's his character rather than a reveal but doing it at winter is coming um given the precedent of last year's like seismic events was possibly a bit daft. I wasn't expecting anything. I kind of guessed who was going to come out mm, yeah. because I've been paying attention to the TV show, but you know, lights out. Tony Cornish is a big ECW mark. That's why this happened. <laughs> yes. He just yeah. loves it. He absolutely loves it. I can't begrudge him for still being passionate about what he does because look at what happens when it doesn't happen on the other channel. I just bollocked you, Wilborn, for doing the whole, I was right about this. Do you know what I was right about? The second Sean Ross Sapp tweeted, you know, that Fightful has learned that CM Punk's been in discussions about return to wrestling. And he instantly think, well, it's not WWE. Let's go, he's coming to AEW. I instantly yeah. knew that they were going to do some things. They love connection-based storytelling and stables. I knew they were going to do something with CM Punk, Darby Allen, and Sting. Yeah. I thought because the elite were teasing it that it was going to be uh, a maker in the books versus Punk. Derby and Sting, but I knew that was going to be a trio. I've got the receipt to prove it, and uh, yeah, I'm happy to see my ideas being used. And I did like the uh, the hesitation, let's say, when a smiling punk offered a handshake or a you know casual high five, or whatever you want to call it, to Derby Allen. He was still like, "You do know we fought, right?" Yeah. But he's like, eh, eh, "You're right, okay, yeah, fair enough." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, very excited to see where they go next with that and the whole show really going forward after that sensational episode of Dynamite. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Great time to be an AEW fan, to borrow my esteemed colleagues. <laughs> uh, right, well, let us know your thoughts on AEW Dynamite. Winter is coming on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Uh, well, actually, they can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamlet at... Michael Hamlet. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. 2pm today for that exclusive... <laughs> story beats that he would like to pitch to you guys on Twitter. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WWE. Uh, and make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from. For daily wrestling podcasts, we'll of course be back tomorrow with the AEW Rampage preview. But for now, this has been the AEW Dynamite Review. My thanks to the Dadley Boys. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.